1: This is the Faith 2020 Podcast brought to you by the ANN Campaign. I am your host, Michael Ware. So glad to have you with us for this episode. It has been an interesting month in the Democratic primary, and we're about to have another reset with these Democratic debates. And I have just the perfect guest for you for this early stage of the primary. We have Jack Jenkins of Religion News Service with us, Jack is a a good friend, someone who uh, has been reporting and working in these issues for a long time. And particularly in this cycle, uh, he has just been reporting like a fiend. I mean, he's just been all over the place and making sure that we don't lose track of how critical faith is in this election. And Uh, Jack has really been one of those people who's helped raise the profile of how faith operates, especially on the left. And so it's going to be great to have him on. In our conversation, we talk about quite a lot in this primary so far with the Democratic candidates. And so I think that's going to be a great conversation. I don't have too many comments before the interview because Jack and I get into so uh, many sort of current event topics. I do want to talk about the debate, and really two comments. The first on how the debates were chosen, uh, the debate lineups were chosen. You know, we we had a twenty four hour period that started with a rally that President Trump held, where he presided over chants of "Send her back," that were widely seen as racist, and, you know, so much of the debate over, you know, Trump's rhetoric is just solved by looking at the spirit of the audience. So, so like, you know, you see the words in print, that's one thing. You actually see the the audience engage in these chants. Anti-Semitic screams. And I know there's a lot going on there, but one thing that's going on is that politics is entertainment for them. I think it makes them feel good to, to chant that way and to be supported by a president while doing so for whatever walk-back President Trump tried to tried to run, I think, a couple of days after that rally. But it was quite a chant, and uh, I felt a little bit badly about it. But I will say this, uh, I did and I started speaking very quickly. But it started up rather Here's the problem. Fast. 24 hours later, CNN, which is hosting the debates next week, decides to unveil and select the debate lineups for people who are competing to be leader of the free world and to go up against Donald Trump. CNN decides to do this in like an NFL draft... Like Jokathon, they did an hour of prime time that was uh basically pulling names from like a bingo cart thing <laughs> and matching them up with dates, using all kind of rhetoric about how, you know, as the debate lineup shook out, well we're gonna have this face off, this is gonna be a rematch. They're really like they were hyping up a boxing match. It's just not constructive. And and this is part of what we're talking about when we talk about our media environment enabling a view of politics that is about everything but public service. Now, you isolate this one thing, oh, it's harmless, the, the debates have to get picked anyways, why not do it in a way that allows the American people to have insight into it, whatever, whatever. But, I mean, this, this folks' entire approach to politics. And then you think about the fact that they do it because they know that the American people will eat it up. And so they go to like the worst impulse of the American people and they, they just sort of feed it. So that's not healthy. But there's another thing that's not healthy about the way these debates are picked out. Uh, the debate lineups are picked out. Last week, we had a week of back and forth between Biden and and Sanders on Medicare for All.
0: On the trail, the political heat this week has been over health care and a policy duel between former Vice President Joe Biden and Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. In Waukee, Iowa, Biden unveiled a health care plan that would keep and expand the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare.
1: My proposal is we take Obamacare and we build on the parts that have been taken away and we add a public option.
0: Meaning universal government-run health care. That's something championed by Sanders, who sharply fired back with graphics saying Biden has been lying about Medicare for
1: all. Every family in America would receive comprehensive coverage. All basic health care needs are covered. And they're not even going to be on the same debate stage. The number one and number two, according to most national polling, number one and number two candidates in this race. And, and they won't be on the same de- debate stage this week to actually have a substantive discussion about health care, which, you know, we could use. So it's, it's a problem. This debate field is going to get winnowed. It's going to be interesting to see how they decide to handle the debates, depending on how many candidates meet the uh, September benchmarks. But I, I'm not sure the... Democratic primary voters, I'm not sure the American people have, are getting the debates they deserve at this point. So we'll just have to see how this shakes out. All right, that's my uplifting, uplifting commentary of this episode. We're gonna pick it up a little bit with Jack Jenkins after this break. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast. I'm thrilled to have Jack Jenkins with us. Jack is a national reporter with Religion News Service, where he covers Catholicism, as well as the intersection of religion and politics. At the top of our conversation, we're going to be able to uh, hear a bit more about Jack and how he found himself uh, reporting in this area. I was glad to learn a couple new things about Jack. I think you'll enjoy this conversation. It's another one of those good table-setting conversations, uh, because believe it or not, we're still really early in this thing, and so I'm really glad to have Jack kind of walk through what's sticking out most to him, and, uh, and we, we have a good back and forth about that. All right, folks, here's our conversation with Jack Jenkins on the Faith 2020 Podcast. Welcome to the Faith 2020 Podcast, Jack. Great to have you on. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, well, I've been looking forward to having you on. I think it's so important that you are a guest, you know, this early in the life of the podcast because, uh, man, you have this beat covered, this cycle. I mean, you are the uh, uh, Democratic Faith 2020 reporter on this cycle. Uh, You've just been doing incredible work. I am so excited uh you know about what's going to come out of uh your shop uh you know in in the in the months ahead and just for listeners I'll probably say this multiple times but you're listening to this podcast because you want to understand faith in 2020 if if that is your sort, sort of goal you need to be following and reading everything jack writes as well so so jack thanks for thanks for joining us
0: well thank you thank you very much I appreciate that
1: you're a journalist. And so you are, you know, a robot with no history, no bias, no, uh, (laughs) no, no personality. Uh, But before we get to, you know, the raw details of, of faith in 2020, I do think it would be interesting for our listeners to just know a bit of like how you came to write about uh, faith and politics and public life and sort of just kind of what, what your background is and, and why this, this general area, you know, interests you so much.
0: Um, so, you know, I'm, I, I grew up in the American Southeast. I'm originally from South Carolina and, um, you know, the, the idea that faith wouldn't be a component, of your life in all aspects of your life, like was was almost alien. That concept was was alien to people when I, where I grew up. I grew up, you know, Presbyterian and went to um, you know, Presbyterian church and went to Presbyterian college. And that's not one kind of Presbyterian college. That's what it's called, Presbyterian college. <laughs> um, and then, you know, after uh, college, um, you know, I I ended up doing a little work with politics and campaigning. But I also kind of still kept this fascination with faith in and of itself. And so I ended up going back into divinity school. And that's where everything kind of started to fall together for me, where I started really getting interested in these questions of what does it look like to intersect religion and politics? And so when when I was in divinity school, I actually ended up on a fluke uh, interning um, with the religion news service. And so um, they, they, for reasons passing understanding, let somebody like me who had never written a story before um, write stories for them. And slowly but surely, like these, these this kind of beat emerged for, for my interests, which was, you know, the intersection of religion and politics, which is certainly not a new beat, but one where I thought there were a lot of angles that just went unexplored. And so, you know, years later, um, after I got out of divinity school, I ended up working at the Center for American Progress, and at Think Progress in particular, where I was their um, religion reporter. And to be quite frank, uh, while I was working there, there there were people who were very informed about religion, but there were also a lot of folks who, when I was working there, were like, look, we don't know what you do, and we don't understand what you do, but just keep doing it, because apparently people want to read about it. And, (laughs) And so that kind of became a really interesting experience for me, which is that a lot of these intersections of religion and politics in progressive spaces were places where um, there just wasn't a lot of coverage. And regardless of how people feel about them, there are a lot of interesting things happening at that intersection. And mm. uh, you know, I, for years, there was I would go to events or protests or, or forums, and I would be the one journalist in the room. Um, so mm. I would get all the scoops there because I didn't have a whole lot of competition. And then, you know, things can full circle and ended up back at um religion news service about a year and a half ago and since then you know what has been interesting this year you were you were i appreciate your remarks at the top about you know um me covering this beat but actually this year i have had a lot of competition covering the intersection of democrats and faith which Mm -hmm. is you know really fascinating thing for me where I'm like jostling with my colleagues and in religion reporting (laughs) to get these stories and just political reporters. I mean, it's been really fascinating to see how there's just, if anything, I can't keep track of it all anymore. Um, And that's a for me, as far as I'm concerned, that's a, that's a good problem to have. So that's kind of how I landed in this space.
1: That's wonderful. So, uh, you know, for this episode, uh, what I really want is to, and hopefully, you know, we'll have you back on as we get deeper into this primary process, but I'd really just love for you to sort of open up, you know, what's interesting to you so far about this cycle what candidates are engaging in religion in an interesting way? And I guess that's where I'll start. I want to talk on the religious actor, actor side. We have we had Reverend Barber and Jonathan wilson Hartgrove on last week and interested to hear what you think of the Poor People's Campaign and you did reporting on their summit. But before we get to sort of what religious groups are doing, what do you find interesting about the Democratic candidates and how they're approaching faith in 2020 in Is it a continuation of what's happened in the past or do you see any significant kind of breaks?
0: Well, I mean, again, I, I'll defer to you as someone who's literally done this for a living, but I, um, the, the intersection of faith and politics this cycle, it, for whole, for several candidates, and admittedly there's like an ever-expanding field of them, um, but for several candidates, it's just a given that it will be a component of their political rhetoric, that references mm-hmm. to faith and morality is just a part of what they do. And I think for me, what became really fascinating is about a year and a bit ago, um, I went to cover the Festival of Homiletics, which is this preacher's conference that was convened in Washington, D.C. that's mostly white mainline pastors. And the reason I went to cover it is because I got a tip that both Cory Booker and Elizabeth Warren, neither of whom had announced their campaigns yet, were going to be at that event. Now – both of them have done interviews about faith in the past and have some faith connection, but Cory Booker was the one that that, that most made sense to me to be there because he's, he's spoken at a lot of different um, religious events over the years. He has um, spoken at explicitly religious events as well as protests and I showed up and, mm. and he gave you know a lot of he gave a talk that that reflected a lot of things he said in the past. Um, But Elizabeth Warren, her people, you know, sent out a press release and really wanted people to be there. And what was fascinating to me was watching her give this talk that, um, you know, had both, both of these, um, both senators got standing ovations from the crowd, by the way, and were clearly um, beloved by this mostly liberal Christian crowd. But the uh, Elizabeth Warren, by the end, had people like chanting with her. Our fight is a righteous fight, and she outlined (laughs) this whole um, argument, this whole story about her as a um, Sunday school teacher, um, et cetera, et cetera. What's interesting is a year later. Uh, after she's announced her campaign for president. Again, Cory Booker kind of has been on message about this for quite some time and continues to inculcate a lot of his um, presidential rhetoric with um, religious rhetoric and vice versa. But for Warren, you know, around Easter, her, cam- her two different Twitter feeds both released a video, one of her visiting what I believe was her home church, kind of, you know, discussing that experience to her, and another video that was just a 10-minute clip from that festival of homiletic speech. And since then, you've seen her on the stump use a lot of that same rhetoric, which tells me that this was something that her campaign was considering at least a year out as something to work on and something to workshop. And so to me, that's really fascinating that you're seeing that level of, premeditation and dedication to kind of like really work working on it and thinking about faith rhetoric um not as something to kind of do on the side and flippantly and spontaneously but to really you know take it seriously as something that you know you should you should appeal to while speaking to voters
1: and the buy-in across the staff is something i've been really struck by in Warren's campaign, judges campaign. Oh, yeah. You know, B- Biden's campaign is sharing clergy endorsements and religious leader endorsement on the main, uh, on like their main campaign page. Booker, as you mentioned. I, I-, I mean, it's one thing for the candidates to go in. Uh, you know, a lot of times in my experience, the religious stuff is kind of candidate driven or like the very senior strategy level. But to see like the social media teams Oh yeah. And like we this is something that we need to and, and that that we can promote to our followers is just such a um it's not brand new, but it is I think telling about the particular moment we're in. And as you said, like the, the candidates who are running like for Warren, Booker, Buttigieg, Biden, and, and for other Gillibrand, uh, like religion isn't something that they've invented uh, as part of their background <laughs> for a presidential run. It's it's something that that they've engaged with in their in their public roles and in their personal lives. And, and that's uh, we're, we're really seeing that play out in, in the primary so far.
0: And and to your point, I mean, just last week, Jill Brand posted a video to her Twitter feed that is just is just like a clip of her talking about religion and faith, and then juxtaposing her faith to that of Donald Trump, Um, and her saying that you know the things that are happening along the border, she said that is not Christian, and she like ended that clip by saying that is evil. Like what's happening along the, tr- um, that it's not Christian. It is evil. What's happening along the border, us, Mexico border and quote. And that's why I'm running for president. And that's why I'm going to beat him. Like the faith yeah. message um threaded directly into her campaign message. And as you know, that a similar message has been uh, delivered multiple times by Pete Buttigieg, both oh. on the stump and he just like inserted it into an answer during the last Democratic presidential debate. Yeah, where there's this juxtaposition between the faith of these candidates and what and how they describe, you know, faith in the United States in general, and that the faith they see expressed or not expressed by the Trump administration and Trump himself. And I think that I will note that I do think that's an undercurrent for a lot of this moral and faith-based language is that i think a lot of democrats just see 100 percent yeah they, they, they see that the actions of this administration is like an opening like it's easy like from their perspective they see it yeah. as like well it's now easy to make a moral argument in this direction because they just give um that 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 vacuum has been created by the actions of the trump administration
1: that's right it, it like if, if you were paying attention to like mainstream Internal democratic criticism around, like in the beginning of the century, and particularly during the Bush years, the 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 critique was, you know, Democrats talk about policy, but they don't get values. They never talk about values. And if someone was, you know, time traveled from say like two thousand four to today, they'd be like, "What party?" Is this? And I think you're exactly right, Jack. It, it's a sense that, you know, like n- not only do we have a seat at the table for this values conversation, but what I'm hearing, and I'm interested to see like h- how much these campaigns are thinking about this tr- strategically or what, how, how much of a concern it should be. You're starting to hear several of these candidates, like Gillibrand, like Buttigieg, as you mentioned, begin to say, not just like, I'm a Christian too or I'm a, I have values too but start to say you know really a parallel of what the religious rights in my view you know destructive message was you know in, in the 80s and the 90s and you know continuing up to today which was I am the values person <laughs> and the other side should be like excised from from like public like propriety, um, right, right. like Judge like seems a, he seems to vacillate quite a bit from you know, like my values lead me to be a Democrat to like I don't see how a Christian could not be a Democrat, which is just a brand new thing in in the modern political era. So, like, are you seeing that? Do you see that? vacillation? And do you think that there's, you know, from an analytical perspective, to the extent that you're able, you know, yeah. um, do, like, what what do you think of how that dynamic's went? Well, I think it's telling that,
0: like, and, and this this story has only been mentioned a few times in the press, but Buttigieg's ascendancy in the democratic field was rooted primarily in a few comments he made over the course of a week, particularly one he made during a CNN town hall, in which he was asked whether Vice President Pence would make a better president than Trump. And his response was this lengthy oration about the nation about about the nature of faith? Basically, saying and, and he he called into question President um Trump's um, President Pence's affiliation with sorry Vice President Pence's affiliation with President Trump, saying you know the fact that he aligned himself with this th- this president. He asked the rhetorical question, you know, did he stop believing in scripture when he started believing in Donald Trump? I don't know, right? And that's an inf- direct infringement on a direct attack on the, on the nature of Vice President Prince's faith. And of course, Donald Trump's faith as well. And like, again, it's a far more hard charging, um, you know, critique coming from the left than we're used to hearing. You know, to be fair, if you go to activist circles, you've heard that for some time, but to hear candidates, um, you know, uh, just d- kind of detail that sort of steep um, theological criticism, you know, that's that's a relatively new development in democratic um, rhetoric outside of only a few circles.
1: Let's talk about sort of the religious side because this isn't just about how candidates are trying to reach people of faith, but uh, you know, you do a lot of reporting on religious groups and actors that are trying to actively influence twenty twenty. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you know, I think. Reverend Barber and the work of the Poor People's Campaign and Moral Mondays and all of the various iterations of that sort of broader movement are uh, a key piece. But you also report on the the Black Church. You report on Sojourners. You report on the Catholic Church. So who do you think or what issues do you think will be the primary sort of drivers that people of faith and faith-based advocacy groups you know, are, 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 are driving to influence the 2020 candidates.
0: Well, I mean, yeah, the, the most obvious one and the most, you know, successful one in terms of it, this thus far in the campaign season, influencing the 2020 candidates is William Barber and the um, poor people's campaign. And, and the reason for that is just obvious, you know, a few weeks ago um, two things happened over the course of a few days. One William Barber held a protest outside of the white house um, to decry kind of the, uh, and alongside a, a multitude of other progressive faith actors, you know, to kind of decrying the Trump administration. And Pete Buttigieg just showed up and didn't say anything. Right. And, for, and I'll, I'll note as a side digression, that's a fascinating moment to me because Pete Buttigieg showed up and said nothing. And whether that was intended or not, it shows a wild, you know, difference in values in terms of compared to where President Trump had just shown up at a church a couple of weeks before and, you know, effectively ended up on stage and that pastor got in a lot of trouble for praying prominently over Trump, whereas Buttigieg just wanted to be a face in the crowd. I mean, the photo op he got out of that was sitting next to... Um, Reverend Barber on the curb and then sitting among the crowd where it wasn't clear if everybody in the crowd knew who he was. And that right. is a, you know, and that played really well with progressive religious activists. But then a few days later, you know, uh, William Barber had this, um, in the Poor People's Campaign with Liz Theo Harris as well, convened this, uh, pres- presidential candidates forum. And you've got nine candidates there. And apparently the only reason they didn't get 10 is because, you know, Julian Castro's fight got canceled. And so the, you know, what you ended up with is these front runners, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, Warren Bernie Sanders, all at this forum talking about poverty. Now, I should note this. Poor People's Campaign is obviously rooted in a conversation about poverty, but as I'm sure was clear in the previous podcast that you had, you know, there's actually a pantheon of, of policies and issues attached to that that range from immigration to Native American sacred land claims to conversations about both the treatment of, uh, you know, people on the border, as well as lower income individuals and a myriad of economic policies attached to that and just critiques of what you know they say was described as religious nationalism and critiques of the religious right. And they referenced all of those things while they were talking to these candidates. So simply getting 10 candidates to show up at both protests and a summit over the course of a week, I mean, they, did, they got better candidate participation than Netroots. You know, one of the preeminent progressive gatherings of the year didn't get as much attention as William Barber did. And that's really telling to me. I mean, you ended up in a situation where when Joe Biden got in that stage and um, started talking about poverty and started you know, referencing one of the statistics that the Poor People's Campaign uses to describe poverty and low-income people, like the Washington Post fact-checked it. Like They had to have a whole fact-checking article just on, on rhetoric that Joe Biden was repeating from the Poor People's Campaign. And that's a direct sphere of, you know, connection of influence um, from these faith-based activists and, you know, these candidates. And it, it's telling to me that not only did a lot of these candidates kind of get FaceTime with William Barber before they ran for office, they're now, you know, circling back to appear at those same kinds of events. And so that, to me, seems like an obvious um connection between uh, these candidates and, and you know, th- these faith based activists. Um, now, there are a myriad of other groups attached to that, right? So a lot of different faith groups that work on immigration are a part of that conversation anyway, right? So when, when candidates go and visit a bunch of, uh, you know, I- um, immigration and immigrant rights activists, a lot of those people were faith based. And so, uh, and they're hoping to influence the candidates to have a conversation about immigration. And to be fair, one of the leaders in the candidates' field, in terms of uh, in the twenty twenty Democratic candidates' field, is Julian Castro, who has spoken overtly about his faith. And during his announcement speech, referenced that he was baptized at the church across the street, and even announced initially his campaign while standing in front of an image of Our Lady of Guadalupe, an image that's very important to um, Mexican. Catholic, So there just seems to be a lot of, of cross-pollination, more so than I've seen in the past, between the rhetoric and the campaigns of faith-based activists and the rhetoric coming out of the mouths of candidates on the stump.
1: In this podcast, we haven't talked much about the Republican side mm-hmm. because it's it's a lot more straightforward <laughs> than the Democrats <laughs> right now. Uh, but Axios reported maybe a week, week and a half ago about the Trump administration's plans to boost white evangelical turnout even higher than it was in 2016. Can you just talk a little bit, and maybe it, you know, you've know you done a, a good deal of writing on the idea of uh, Christian nationalism and that thread in our politics, um, but can you talk a little bit about what we should expect from the Trump campaign when it comes to Mobilizing their faith voters and just engaging in the faith conversation overall.
0: Yeah, so I mean, one thing to keep in mind when we talk about white evangelicals in a Trump context is that you know there there used to be this kind of conventional wisdom that someone like Ted Cruz is the most natural fit um, for how to appeal to white evangelical Protestants, right? So when he launched his campaign, for the 2016 election, Ted Cruz, he did so at Liberty University, which seemed like the most natural way to do that. He tapped into a lot of these existing kind of machine politics Infrastructures within the religious right to kind of activate these sorts of voters. What was interesting about Trump's rise is that he seemed to appeal to the same demographic in a way that was simultaneously similar and distinct from how Ted Cruz would have done it. Um, You know, kind of, there is an argument in terms of uh, how a lot of these different voters vote at the end of the day. Um, particularly these early primary white evangelical protestants who it's we should make the distinction early on in the primary season in 2016 there was a distinction between the kinds of white evangelicals that were voting for trump and the kinds of white evangelicals that were flocking to ted cruz and other candidates and that a lot of the ones that were flocking to trump and this is only early on weren't white evangelicals who attend church quite as much as their colleagues who as their their brethren in faith who were um, flocking to Ted Cruz, and those still identify as white evangelicals, but they can be appealed to different ways. So that having been said, you know a lot of the ways that that Trump appealed to them back in 2016, I think you're just going to see a lot of that on repeat this go round, which is a fusion of nationalism and references to faith, a guarantee that he would continue to put um, Supreme Court justices. Um, you know, on the court were there another opening to occur. And in the meantime, in the federal courts that would protect, um, you know, there would, there would be a, a uh, sort of a wall against the um, any sort of progressive movements on abortion in particular. And, you know, and I think he, you will see him absolutely use these laws that were passed um, in more liberal states recently regarding abortion. As evidence of, you know, you need to. This, this is the big fight that we need to have, and I will protect you, and, and, and protect you, um, white evangelical Christians, from this coming. Progressive wave um, that will that will potentially destroy your way of life. So that that you're probably going to see that coupled with things that will happen on the ground, right? Whether that's the faith captains <laughs> that was referenced in the um, the Axios article, which is you know kind of more grassroots approach where you you, you do see a kind of like tactical. Um, um response to this that isn't just a media game that is you know appealing to people where they live. But you also have surrogates um like people like Paula White, you know, the Florida pastor who you know has been a prominent advisor and advocate for um Trump throughout his presidency and during his campaign back in 2016. And those people are often the ones who were they they put on television. They asked to ha- go on television often on behalf of the White House um, whenever Trump encounters controversy. So I, I think, as long as I, in simul, it's simultaneously way more complicated than 2016 and also pretty simple in terms of the playbook that I imagine and expect the uh, the 2020 Trump campaign to use and I'll just note that you know we just had an instance recently where earlier this year one of the campaign officials for the Trump campaign tweeted out referring you know thanking God for sending what appeared to be him referencing Trump as a savior, right. And while that rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, I think, you know, that that can play well with a certain subset of white evangelical conservatives.
1: It sure can, Jack. It sure sure can. Uh, So, you know, that is what whoever emerges out of this Democratic primary is going to, to face. I guess my last question for you is the general is a far ways off as you look at this primary, you know, make some predictions for us, or at least <laughs> sort of not, not about who's going to win, but are there particular faith angles that you've been waiting to see uh, sort of poke through or that you think are going to make a difference as we continue to see this primary unfold? And and, and what are they?
0: I do think, um, you know, that aforementioned, Tendency for several Democratic candidates to juxtapose um, this uh, a version of what is often a Christian faith there, you know, there's different candidates in the Democratic field that are not Christian, um, but often, you know, appeal to this kind of civil Christian religion um, of, you know, welcoming the stranger, for instance, you know, a Christian reference to welcoming the immigrant. Um, as they see it, and, and also, you know, kind of this, uh, w- how you treat your neighbor. Kamala Harris was actually recently on South Carolina television talking about her faith, you know, saying, who is your neighbor? And she referenced, you know, the poor so and the hungry, and then she also so yeah, and she also referenced the immigrant <laughs> on the border. And I think you're going to see a lot of candidates draw that distinction when this stuff comes up. They're going to draw a difference between the faith that they hold dear personally, and that I would expect them to also kind of apply that to those who are in the room or those who would vote for them, and what is being um, articulated by the Trump administration, either you know, rhetoric from the president or just the policies that they promote. I think that, that's not going to go away. If anything, that'll probably only get stronger, and I would be surprised if it didn't actually come up in a hypothetical debate between one of the front runners right now and um, Trump. You know, in, in the general election, mm-hmm. I expect that, I, I, I expect faith to come up in one of those that if, if I if I'll put something on there, I, I expect that to be a thing. If, if it's one of the front runners that are currently um, heading up um, the, the general election, I mean, heading up the Democratic field, and I include Bernie Sanders in that, by the way. Who right. um who, who yeah. was
1: Jewish? But- it was Bernie who went to Liberty. Exactly. It was Bernie who went to Liberty in 2016. That's and right.
0: and you know Bernie might not be the person to start that conversation with Trump, but he certainly would be the person to reference all the other faith groups that he's met along the way who articulate a different vision. Um, and and you know and, and Sanders did you know um, has has had faith based um, um, surrogates. I mean, he has people like Cornell West who teaches at Harvard Divinity School as one of the people who speaks in his behalf. So. I I would expect that to continue. I would also expect, um, I think there were lessons learned from um, the Alabama Senate race that allowed Doug Jones to defeat Roy Moore. I think that, uh, I I do think that Democrats um, understand the value of uh, the black church and how how women in the black church can have a profound electoral influence, particularly in elections that are close. And so I would expect Democrats to not take that vote for granted this go-round. Um, I am curious to see whether these campaigns, because both Buttigieg and Booker have posted positions for faith outreach directors or organizers. I am curious to see whether the campaigns match what you and I know the Democratic Party has already begun to invest in, um, which is faith outreach staff um, really early on. And, uh, and if, whether or not it's just something that it's part of the rhetoric, which in and of itself is an interesting thing, or if there is a team of people who are dedicated to trying to find ways to do a direct appeals to these voters on the ground, whether they can match the quote unquote faith captains that the Republican national committee appears primed to um, employ in 2020 um, with a democratic equivalent.
1: We are looking at the same thing there, Jack. (laughs) I think that is, that is one of the outstanding questions. You know, I, I think I'm, I'm also, I've also been wondering, you know, to what extent, the faith rhetoric, particularly to be blunt, to what extent the faith rhetoric out of um, the white candidates has been focused, particularly on South Carolina, mm-hmm. as a as a sort of uh, uh, an honest sort of personal way to try and make inroads in a state where you have to have a significant percentage of the Black Mm -hmm. vote in order to be successful. And so I I appreciate that suggestion. The other thing, uh, that prediction, the other prediction, you know, uh, I think about the 2000, and you'll know this, I think about the 2004 debate Mm. where in the Senate race between Barack Obama and Alan Keyes, where Alan Keyes basically Uh, said that, not basically, he said that Jesus would not vote for Barack Obama. (laughs) And to think that 16 years from that point, I I think you're right. I think we very well could see a general election debate in which a Democratic candidate uh, says almost, if not as explicitly, something along those lines, something along those lines that Donald Trump has not operated as a Christian uh, as a Christian president should, um, which which would be such a tipsy top, uh, uh, yeah. you know, uh, such a different world for those <laughs> of us who have paid attention uh, to this space oh, yeah. for a
0: while. A complete inversion of the way that faith has been understood as part of the political rhetoric for some time. And, and I, I will note, what's fascinating to me about Democrats as they wade into like increased um, religious rhetoric as a part of their um, political rhetoric is that it is also true that if you break down the Democratic Party into its fundamental pieces by religious association, the largest single group are those who are religiously unaffiliated, which aren't necessarily mean doesn't necessarily mean they're anti-religion by any means. But you also have yeah. people who are deep and abiding whole populations of the Democratic Party who vote in droves, who also go to church quite regularly. So a Democratic candidate has to right. you know square the circle of appealing to both the most and the least um, religious voters in the country. And um, so it's often fun, interesting to see how they make that same message you just you just mentioned. You know that how they how they say that same um, and make that same appeal to you know this the, the faith of this individual in, in office, this president is in to my own faith, while also attacking to it. And also we should respect the, um, the uh, separation of church and state. And like, they have this like line that they all use exactly to make sure right. they're making clear exactly that they're not right. you know um, trying to invoke a, a, a theocracy. So it's it's fascinating to watch. That's
1: right. Well, Jack, if history uh, tells us anything, Democrats will make many mistakes trying to do that (laughs) along the way, and you will be there to cover each and every one of them. (laughs) Jack, can't thank you enough for being with us. We hope to have you back on. Folks, you can uh, read Jack's Excellent reporting uh, at Religion News Service. And then, Jack, I love following you on Twitter, man. Could you remind folks what your handle is and any other way you'd like folks to uh, to, to stay up on Sure. Sure.
0: Um, you can follow me on Twitter at JackMJenkins. That's J-A-C-K, the letter M, then J-E-N-K-I-N-S
1: on Twitter. That's wonderful. Jack, thanks for being with us. Talk to you soon, brother. Thanks so much for having me. A good conversation with Jack appreciated his insights he gave us quite a bit to look out for particularly obviously at the end there and we'll stay attentive to some of those signals being sent from the campaigns i was interested especially in what he had to say about elizabeth warren is someone who for some reason i think is underrated when it comes to being able to do faith outreach Maybe it's a Massachusetts thing. Maybe it's the Harvard professor idea, but she's putting in the work. I don't think that she has the raw sort of talent or the the historical background that a Cory Booker brings or a Biden brings to this. But just watch out for Elizabeth Warren, who, as we've discussed on previous episodes, you know has a way of speaking, especially about the economy, in just completely authentic, natural values-laden language, because that's how she's thought about these things uh, her whole life. And and, hey, that has potential to go a long way. All right, we're going to wrap it up there. We have the debates next week. In our next episode, we'll make sure to uh, certainly run down any aspects of those debates that touch on faith. And I really think we're going to start seeing this race pick up this period between the July debates and then heading into September are just going to be critical. And so it's going to be a joy to, uh, to walk through it with you all. August is going to be, I think, a mess. We're going to get leaked fundraiser comments because it's August. Folks are going to be down at Martha's Vineyard because that's what they do. Uh, and I'm sure we're going to have a lot of interesting sort of, uh, flashpoints in the race that come up at a time when folks want to be on vacation when people are feeling a little little looser and all kinds of stuff can happen when when that's the that's the environment all right folks hey this is michael weir you're listening to the faith 2020 podcast thanks for being with us leave a review on itunes Uh, reach out to us on twitter And uh, we'll keep the conversation going, uh, helping you see 2020 clearly through the lens of faith. I'm out. Faith 2020 is produced by Podestary Studios and brought to you by the Ann Campaign. Learn about the Ann Campaign by visiting anncampaign.org. Our producer for the show is Bo York. Our guest this week was Jack Jenkins. And I've been your host, Michael Ware. I look forward to speaking with you again on the next episode of Faith 2020. Oh, man, I was looking forward to Biden and Bernie being at the same debate having that healthcare discussion Bernie all like we need Medicare for all I want Medicare for all so much Ber- uh, Biden being like some people want it all but I don't <laughs> it was gonna be awesome uh, missed opportunities Bo, missed opportunities